Well, hey guys, good morning. Jacob, dude, you already preached my sermon for me. That's awesome. I'm basically just going to exposit on what Jacob has already said. And um, I can't believe that I have to say this, but hi, my name is Cole. I realize, I, I, I realize I'm looking around in the room right now and I don't know everybody like I used to know them just a couple of years ago when I was a part of Redeemer. Hi, Ben. It's good to see you, man. Hey, you doing good, bro? Big stuff going on in your life, right? What's a, you know what, let's have this conversation when I'm not preaching. Um, But guys, it's so good to see you. This is the church where, um, this is the church, this is like the first church that I fell in love with the church at. Like, this is the first church where I learned how to pastor. This was the first church that really took a risk with me. This is the first church that taught me what it meant to lead a church and to love a local church. This is the church that financially supported the church that I planted. This is the church that prayerfully supported us over in Frontier Church in Des Moines. So I just can't, I, I can't even describe to you what it feels like to be back in this room this morning worshiping Jesus and preaching his words to you it, like it just I just feel whole you know I just there's just so much joy and excitement that's overflowing in my heart so if I seem a little giddy to you it's because I feel like I'm back in like mom and dad's house and I'm so excited to see you guys so Psalm 16 that's already been read I'm gonna pray and then we're just gonna move and shake and we're gonna blitz through this psalm together Heavenly Father We love your presence. We believe that in your presence there is fullness of joy and we believe that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We really believe that, Lord. And so I pray against any spirit this morning. I pray against any temptation to simply want to be the same person that we came in through those doors as. I know that there are people right now in this room who simply want to get through this sermon, who simply want to get through this service, and who want to leave and walk through those doors the exact same person that they came in as. And I pray against that spirit, Lord. We really believe that you are present with us. We really believe that you can touch our lives, that you can breathe into our souls, that you can lift us up out of the mire, that you can get your hands on us and transform us. And Lord, I pray that for me. I do not want to leave this room the same person that came in here. And so Lord, if only one person in this room experiences increased joy in Jesus, just one, then all of the work that went into prepping the sermon, all the work that went into prepping the service, all the work that went into all of the music and hitting the right notes and gathering together and giving announcements, if one person experiences increased joy in Jesus, then all of that would be worth it. And Lord, I pray that I'm that person who experiences increased joy in Jesus. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray all those things. Amen. Start with a confession, guys. Um, Those of you who know me, you know that I'm basically a carnivorous sweet tooth. I've got a really, really bad diet. I've got the palate of a toddler. Like, I'm 32 years old, but my food pyramid, if it was left entirely up to me, would be steak and Sour Patch Kids. Like, that would be, like, the whole shebang, the, the whole food pyramid, like some Sour Patch Kids on the side, a steak cooked medium rare. But luckily, since Mary and Chloe these last couple years, I've been getting a little bit better. Um, my diet's been improving a little bit, but last year for Christmas, I still got candy from the in-laws. 
32 years old. And I get candy, like, for my birthday and for Christmas. It's ridiculous, like the palate of a toddler. But I did have one moment, I swear, a couple of years ago where I wanted to eat healthy. <laughs> I was watching the Food Network. I don't know. I never thought I would say that out loud. I got it. I'm just not, like, a Food Network person. Have you guys watched this Food Network stuff? Yes? Okay, yeah. I mean... I mean, they are so good at their, I mean, they're so articulate and like they could sell you on anything. Like they could sell bacon to a pig. I was watching, I was, I was watching this program. I was watching this TV show on the Food Network and this lady was making vegetable stew and I couldn't believe it, but I was like on the edge of my seat. I was like, I want some vegetables too. It's all about the presentation, right? This, this lady on the TV show, she was making vegetables too. She was putting vegetables in, and, and it's all about the presentation. She, she took a pinch of salt, right? A little, little pinch of salt, and it was the way that she sprinkled it into the vegetable stew, right? And then and she said, what this salt is going to do is it's going to release some of the juices of the vegetables, and it's going to release some of that flavor in there, and it's going to make a beautiful and delightful vegetable stew. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to feel about the Lord the way that you feel about vegetable stew. Like, edge of my seat. I was like, I can't believe this, but I want vegetable stew right now. And then she took some dried oregano, just popped it open, took a little pinch of dried oregano, sprinkled it into the vegetable stew, stewed it around and said, what this dried oregano is going to do is it's going to take this normal dish and it's going to make it into a rustic dish. She did like a a shoulder shimmy. It's going to be a a rustic dish. And like my jaw hit the floor. I was like, I've got to get me, I've got to get me some vegetable stew. So what do you think I did? I got up off of the couch I got into my car and I drove straight to the nearest healthy grocery store to get some stuff for vegetable stew. And once I drove to that grocery store, I drove right by it, went promptly to Burger King and slammed a Whopper. Epic fail. (laughs) Embarrassing for a grown man. Shameful, right? It was an epic fail. It was the defeat of vegetable stew at the hands of a Whopper from Burger King. And I know that this story makes me seem like a child and makes me look like a child, but when I think about this story a couple years ago, I can't help but wonder, is this you? You know You have the head knowledge. You know that you're supposed to delight yourself and satisfy your soul in Christ. But when push comes to shove, you have the tendency to drive right by him and to opt for fast food for your soul instead. Like you know that Jesus is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And he is ultimately what's good for you and ultimately what's good for your soul. But when push comes to shove, though you know this, you have the tendency to drive right past him and to stuff your face on the world rather than Jesus. What this story illustrates is that there's a a profound difference between knowing that something is good for you and actually feasting on something. So my goal this morning is really, really simple. My goal this morning is to encourage you and exhort you to stuff your face on Jesus for the rest of your life and to seek all of your satisfaction and joy in him. And if it seems like I'm giddy this morning, I am giddy this morning. Psalm 16 is like my life psalm. 
Verse 11 is like my life verse, and I know that as I stand before the word of God and preach these things to you, I am just preaching to the choir. I know your leaders, I know your pastors, I know your preachers, and I know that week after week after week after week, they do exactly what Jacob did, encourage you to fight for joy in Jesus. And so I love being here this morning, because more importantly than planting Frontier Church, like more importantly than training me, more important than financially supporting me, more important than sending me with a core team of people to go plant in Redeemer, more important than teaching me how to pastor, more important than all of those, this is the church that taught me how to fight for joy in Jesus. So I'm preaching to the choir. And I know we already read Psalm 16. Let me read all of it once more and then we're gonna move through it and we're gonna try to get to the bottom of some things in here. And I think that maybe by the grace of God, you'll be a different person. Psalm 16. This is not the way that Psalms about joy and happiness begin. But this is the way Psalm 16 begins. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, for you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a stunning psalm, amen? Central claim of the psalm is pretty easy to understand. The central thrust of the psalm is that everybody always pursues joy everywhere. That's it. Everybody always pursues joy everywhere. When you start to move through Psalm 16, what you begin to see is that Psalm 16 is really just a story about two cups. There are two cups in this world, the cup of idolatry and the cup of Yahweh the Lord, and everybody is born thirsty. Everybody's born thirsty, and everybody's got to drink from one cup. So everybody will try to quench their thirst by choosing one of the two cups. If you drink from one of these cups, this cup will multiply your sorrows. But if you drink from the other cup, it will multiply your joy. So if that doesn't make sense to you, that's totally cool. It'll open up as we work our way through the text. But Psalm, uh, Psalm 16, verse 1, that's kind of an interesting place for David to begin his psalm. Like if you've got a Bible open, look, look, at, look at verse one. David begins with the psalm, apparently with his life in danger. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So David's, he's in danger. Right? Preserve me, Lord. 
my life, my life is in danger, and, and we don't know exactly why. I mean, maybe you know exactly why. Maybe you're smarter than me. I read some of the scholars on this, and they're kind of divided because scholars are divided about everything. They don't know exactly what's happening with David's life. They know that his life is in danger. Maybe he's on the run from Saul when he wrote this, Saul. Maybe he was taken away by the Philistines when he wrote this. Maybe he was fighting the Edomites. We don't know. What we do know is that when Psalm 16, those opening credits roll, we do know that David is in a foreign land. His life is in danger because he looks around him and what does he see? Verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David looks around, right? He's in a foreign land. He looks around and he's surrounded by people who are voraciously pursuing joy through other gods, right? He's in the midst of really um, in idolatry everywhere. So no, we don't know if he's fighting the Edomites when he wrote this. We don't know if he was captured by the Philistines. Heck, he may as well be in Cedar Falls for all we know, right? I mean, this, this is Cedar Falls. You look around and you're surrounded by people who though they're mostly upper middle class and mostly nice people with white picket fences, underneath of all of that, you know that there's this desire to worship other gods and to somehow get joy from that. That's where David's at. He looks around, people worshiping other gods, drinking from the cup of idolatry. They're offering, quote, drink offerings of blood. That's in your text. Right, drink offerings of blood. If, if you don't know what David's getting at, that's a reference to human sacrifice, child sacrifice maybe. And this is kind of the part in Psalm 16 where you look at it and you're like, oh man, like, there's maybe still some idolatry in Cedar Falls, but at least we're not committing human sacrifice, right? Like this is the part in the Psalm where you're like, yeah, I know idolatry's... I know it's bad, but I'm glad that nobody in Cedar Falls is committing human sacrifice anymore, child sacrifice, right? Wrong. Here's the logic of the text in Psalm 16. The logic of what David is writing about in Psalm 16 is simple. If you commit your life to idol worship, you will commit human sacrifice. You can, you can reject the God of the Bible, and many people do, but what you can't reject, guys, is the basic human drive and the basic human impulse to worship. So if you don't worship the God of the Bible, you will worship another God or another thing or another idea or another person as God. Like suppose that instead of the God of the Bible, suppose that you decide to worship not Baal, not Pharaoh, not some other ancient God in the Middle Eastern era, but suppose instead of worshiping the God of the Bible, you worship the postmodern God of self-image. What happens when somebody wounds your self-image and you worship it? You respond pretty predictably, don't you? When somebody wounds your self-image or says a mean word against you and you worship the way that people view you, what you end up doing is cutting down that other person, spreading rumors about them, spreading gossip about them, doing anything that you need to and anything that you can say to cut down and undermine their credibility and destroy them. What'd you just do? Human sacrifice. At the altar of self-image, you committed the human sacrifice of another person's reputation. You filled the cup with blood. Or maybe you're not like a self-esteem person. You know, Maybe you're like, I don't even have Facebook. I don't care about self-image. 
Suppose that instead of worshiping the God of self-image, you worship your career. If you worship your career, six, five days a week, 40 hours a week is just not gonna be sufficient for you. You're going to work and work and work and work until the point where your wife is functionally a widower and your children are functionally fatherless. In the pursuit of worshiping the God of work, what have you just done? Human sacrifice. You have sacrificed your marriage. You've sacrificed your child at the altar of the God of work. And David looks around in this foreign territory and he sees people doing this. He sees people worshiping these other gods, committing human sacrifice in order to fill that cup and worship those other gods. And David literally looks around at this and he says, that's not my cup. Right? What is David's cup? Well, it's in the text. Verse 5. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. How do you drink from this cup? Well, verse eight, that's in the text too. David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. You gotta love this. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David, instead of committing himself to idolatry, What he ends up doing is he says, I set the Lord always before me, which is great, but what the heck does that mean? And how the heck is David saying this? David is not in Jerusalem when he writes Psalm 16. He's in a foreign area. He's surrounded by idol worship. In other words, David's not in the temple right now. So he's not talking about reading his Bible because that's in the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem. He's not talking about being in the presence of God or going to church because the temple is back in Jerusalem. So how in the world can David say that he sets the Lord always before himself? Well, I really, really like this text because when you think about it, or when I think about it, what I like to do is I like to imagine David in this foreign land. He's looking around. He's seeing everybody else around him violently pursue other gods. And it feels almost like these other people are tempting David. They want him to commit sacrifice for their God. They want David to commit idol worship. They want David to worship the God of wherever he's at. So he's being tempted. They, they've got the cup, of, the, the cup of blood, and they're saying, hey, David, just come, just come pour this out, man. Just, just come worship this God. And somehow, someway, David is not shaken. Right? That's what he says in the text. He says he's not shaken. And the reason why David is not shaken, I don't think, is because his willpower is so strong. When you think about David, rejecting idol worship. I I don't think about David just like with a frumpy face turned up and like with his arms crossed saying, oh, I'm just, you know, I don't don't drink out of that cup. I'm, I'm not a sinner like you guys. That's not where the power is for David to reject idol worship. Instead, when I think about David saying no to these various cups of idolatry, it's because David brought his own drink to the party. Right, he's got, he's got a different drink. Right? It's, it's, almost like, um, it's almost like David is at a college party, like over at the hill, you and I. Wait, over at the hill? It's that way, right? We don't need to get that. Okay, so it's, it's almost like David is at a college party, right? And he's being tempted by all of these college students to have a drink of Bud Light, 
or to like have a drink of Coors Light or a domestic beer. And somehow, some way, David gets the strength within him to say no to the cup of demons. If you don't know, if you translate the cup of demons in the original text, it means domestic beer. <laughs> no, that's not true. But where's David get the strength to say no? David gets the strength to say no at the party, not because he didn't bring anything to drink, but because he's got his barrel-aged double IPA from his favorite craft brewery, right? He didn't get the strength to say no just by crossing his arms. He's got a better drink. It's, it's a better drink. And so the question is, when everybody around you is drinking from the cup of idolatry, how do you say no to idolatry? And the answer is that you bring your own drink to the party. Right? You bring the cup of the Lord to the party. You set the Lord before yourself always. And this is so important to understand because if you don't understand this, then church just becomes way too much like the Food Network. Jesus becomes way too much like vegetable stew. For 30 minutes a week, you come to church and it's like watching the Food Network. A preacher stands in front of you, opens up the Bible, says, hey, we're gonna sprinkle a little bit of salt into the Bible, and that's gonna draw out the flavors of theology and draw out the doctrine of theology. And for 30 minutes a week, you watch this preacher do this, and for a moment, you think, I want some vegetable stew. But you're just watching. Then a worship leader gets up for three more songs, four more songs, and basically does the same thing, which is good, but the worship leader gets up and says, hey, Jesus is our fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And while you watch the worship leader, it's like watching the Food Network. Just like me on my couch watching the Food Network, for a moment, you think that you desire God. For Sunday mornings, you feel like you desire God, but then when push comes to shove later that day, you drive right past God and open up Facebook to try to satisfy your soul. You drive right past prayer. You drive right past what you know is good for you. You drive right past the healthy grocery store, and instead you opt for spiritual fast food. Rather than actually satisfying your soul on God, you satisfy your soul by opening up Netflix, by opening up Instagram. It turns out, this is such an important observation, it turns out that there's a huge difference between watching Food Network and actually eating good food. It turns out there's a huge difference between going to church and actually feasting on Jesus. And because of that distinction, this is why if God is really going to be David's chosen portion and David's chosen cup, then David must set the Lord before him always. I love reading my Bible, guys. I'm a Bible guy, but David is not talking about reading the Bible. He's captured by the Philistines right now. He's in a foreign territory. He doesn't have his Old Testament with him. He can't read his Bible all the time. Right? David's not talking about going to church when he talks about having the Lord set before him always. The temple is back in Jerusalem. He's apart from the presence of God. He's apart from the Holy Scriptures, and somehow the Lord is still before David. How is this happening? Right, David... David is the king of an entire nation. He can't read his Bible all day as awesome as that would be. 
right? David's got an army to lead. He's a political leader. And this is comforting because you can't read the Bible all day either. So when you read setting the Lord before yourself always, what, what does that mean? Right? You've got to change diapers. You've got to go to work. How do you set the Lord before yourself in all of those situations? Well, what I think David is talking about is meditation. If you want to be serious about setting the Lord before yourself always, you've got to be serious about meditation. Meditation is how you feast on Jesus even when you're not at church. Meditation is how you feast on Jesus even when you don't have your Bible open. Meditation is how you suck the savor out of the joy of Christ like a lozenge every day, all day, always. So there are tons of different ways to meditate, but for those of you who are like, bro, just be practical, okay? If you feel that way right now, let me unpack biblical meditation in four different steps. If you're like me, Maybe you're like super zen-like and you're just holier than me. But if you're like me, when it comes to meditation, I can't just close my eyes and immediately experience the presence of Jesus in front of me. So if you're like me, then these four steps might be super helpful. If you want to practice meditation, first, pick a passage of scripture to read. Make it a short one. Once you read the passage of scripture, the key is to resist the urge to move on to the next verse. You're your whole life, guys, as a Western Christian, is moving from one task to the next task, right? Checking off one box and then moving on to the next box, finishing one goal and going to the next goal. So everything inside of you wants to read that biblical text and then just move on with life. The key is to resist the urge to simply move on to the next paragraph. Instead, after reading the text, close your eyes, take a breath, and just sit still. Second, focus on what you just read. Hold your focus on that biblical passage. Not word for word, not syllable for syllable, just hold your focus on that passage because God has wired your brain to do some pretty incredible things. God has wired you to be a visual learner. What that means is that once you read the text and you hold it in your imagination, your brain will do some amazing stuff. It will take the sentences and the grammar and the propositions of the actual text and your brain will begin to turn it into a painting. It's really amazing. Like the way that God has wired your brain is seriously an amazing thing. As you focus on that passage, it becomes visual to you. You can see it. It's not just letters and sentences and words, but it becomes like this painting where you can see the characters in your mind's eye. You can see the context of the Bible verse. You can see the text as though it's a movie or a drama that's playing out in front of you. And when you begin to visualize the biblical text, you're getting very close to what the Bible talks about when it talks about meditation. But that brings us to the third step of biblical meditation. Third, and this is also key, when you get to the point where you can visualize the biblical truth, don't be easily pleased. Fight. There's a, there's a temptation that once you, once you can picture the biblical fret, once you can picture the biblical meditation, there's a temptation to pat yourself on the back and say, great job, you're there. Resist that urge. 
when you begin to see the painting with your mind's eye, begin to ask Jesus to give you joy in what you're looking at. Say, Jesus, I I need joy in this biblical text. I need joy in looking at this painting. And don't stop when Jesus gives you a little bit of joy. Ask him for joy twice. Ask him for joy five times. Ask him 10 times. Don't stop, but continue to say, Jesus, give me more joy. Please give me more joy because the joy of the Lord is fullness of joy, right? And that means that when you experience joy in Jesus, it's not depleting, it's energizing. And so the more joy that you have in Jesus, the more possible even more joy becomes. Joy is like a muscle that you flex. If, if your heart has 250 megabytes on it, when you put 100 megabytes of joy in it, you don't have 150 megabytes left. Instead, your heart becomes capable of 350 megabytes. So the more joy that Jesus gives you, the more possible more joy is. So when you find yourself fighting for joy, you've read the scripture, you've held it in your imagination, you're fighting for joy, that brings you to the fourth and most important step of meditation, experiencing Jesus. I don't know if any of you guys have seen, have any of you guys seen Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Ben Stiller? Okay, awesome movie and there's this sweet scene from the movie that once I watched it I was like oh that's like biblical meditation if you guys don't know uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty it's, it's totally cool it's about Ben Stiller he's uh, he lives this boring mundane life he doesn't really love the job that he has he's in love with this girl that he can't get the guts to talk to and so he constantly fantasizes about having a better life right just a just a boring dude who wants to escape his life. And so he's constantly daydreaming about having a better life. And then there's one day at work where he's sitting at his desk and he has the magic moment. He's sitting at his desk and he looks over at the wall. And on the wall, there's this painting of this photographer out in the wild. And it captivates him, right? He's at his boring desk, but he sees the painting. So he leans in and looks a little bit more closely at the painting squints his eyes, looks a little bit more closely at the painting, and then the magic moment happens. The photographer in the painting steps out of the painting and waves to Walter Mitty, and that's biblical meditation, right? Jesus is, he is in the text, but he doesn't stay in the text, and so when you begin to picture the Bible and when you begin to visualize it like a painting, Jesus doesn't stay in the frame. You fight and you fight and you fight and you look and you look and you look. And I promise you that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus will step out of the painting, make eye contact with you, wave to you, and call you to leave your boring mundane life and to step into a greater adventure. And you run after Jesus and you run after Jesus and you chase after Jesus and it's through experiencing Jesus, through setting him before you always, that you run right into verse 11. I think the best text in all of the scripture, my favorite text in all of the scripture, when you set the Lord before you always, verse 11 happens. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You enter the wild world of joy, right? You step out of your joyless life, out of your sad life, and you step into the joyful life of the presence of Jesus. I mean, I just don't have better news for you than this. Like the best news in the world is that not only does Jesus want to give you joy, but Jesus is more serious about your joy than you are. 
for a ton of different reasons. Like Jesus wants to give you joy because joy is the organizing principle of your life. Whatever is your supreme joy dictates your decision making. If you ever wonder why you make the decisions you do, why you have the fantasies that you do, it's because that thing is your greatest joy in life. Whatever is your greatest joy in life has the magnetic force of a magnet. It sucks in all of your willpower. It sucks in all of your strength. It sucks in all of your daydreaming. It sucks in all of your decision making and your thoughts and your willpower. Whatever you enjoy, you will obey, amen? It's just the way it works. Whatever you enjoy is what you will obey. And no wonder Jesus wants to be our fullness of joy, right? And so when you begin to experience the joy of the Lord ruling and reigning over your decision-making, you should ask yourself, is there more joy than this? Because the answer is yes. Jesus wants to give you joy because joy makes you strong. You know this, right? If Christ is your joy, you will run through a wall for him. If Christ is your joy, you will walk through the snow barefooted in the middle of an Iowa winter for him. If Jesus is your joy, you'll jump over a building to him. You'll say no to idolatry. You'll say no to sin. Joy is the soul's protein. Joy is what beefs your soul up and gives you the capacity to obey Jesus. It's not a cute phrase in the scriptures when it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right? That's not cute. A lot of people think that means, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be happy? It means what it says. It means that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You don't have strength to worship him apart from that. You don't have strength to obey him apart from that. You don't have strength to follow him apart from that. And so when you fight for joy in the Lord and you find the joy of the Lord strengthening you, you should ask yourself again, could there be more joy? Because the answer is yes. Christ wants you to have his joy because Jesus wants you to feel about him the way that Jesus feels about you. Like brother, sister, if you think that God just puts up with you, Like, let me remind you of the gospel. Jesus has covered you in his very own righteousness. So as you're sitting right there in your seats, you are covered in the robe of Jesus' righteousness. And because you are covered in Jesus' perfection, Jesus rejoices over you. He sings over you. He delights himself over you. I can't explain this in any terms that would make sense to us. Right now in the heavenly realms, Jesus has a big foam finger with your name on it. He's a huge fan. Right now, in the heavenly realm, Jesus has your name painted on his chest. I am not speaking in hyperbole when I say that Jesus is psyched about you. He delights himself in you. He, he says to the angels, hey, yo, you see Cole right there? Like, dude, I am psyched about that dude. I love how that dude is covered in my righteousness. I, I celebrate that dude. I sing over that dude. And when you begin to feel a fraction of the joy towards Christ that Christ feels towards you, what ends up happening is your jaw will hit the floor and you'll never pick it up, right? You'll just become slack-jawed in all of life, walking through this wild world of wonder. If you felt a fraction of the joy towards Jesus, as Jesus feels towards you, your, your heart would have a string of slobber just unceasingly hanging out of the corner of its mouth. 
You would walk through life feasting on Jesus, delighting yourself in Jesus, holding up the cup of the Lord and just chugging it to the very bottom. Your heart would slobber for Jesus. Your heart would drool for Jesus. And when you begin to feel about Jesus the same way that Jesus feels about you, you should ask yourself, is there more joy? No, that's it. Like once you get there, you're there, dude. You're, you're at the very bottom of the human and divine capacity for joy, feeling about Jesus the way that Jesus feels about you. You become a partaker of the divine nature is what Peter calls this, right? You begin to take on the very nature of God because God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And so for all of eternity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been enraptured by one another, enjoying one another. Before the sparkle of a single sunset, before the invention of a single atom, there was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God the Father rejoicing in God the Son, God the Son rejoicing in the beauty of God the Spirit, God the Spirit rejoicing in the perfections of God the Father, just this big old joy fest within the Trinity, God enjoying God and when you begin to feel that way about God, you begin to take on the divine nature. That's why when you experience joy, it's what, it's what scientists call flow, right? It's that feeling of how much time has passed. It's that feeling of stepping outside of time. And the reason why you feel like you step outside of time when you experience joy is because you do step out of time, like you literally do. Like you take on the nature of an eternal God who exists outside of time and in your fight for joy, you end up imaging the God of the universe. Guys, I know what it's like to hear a sermon like this and to think, I see it in the text, but there's no way that'll ever be in my life. And so if you feel that way this morning, I totally get it, but if you feel that way this morning, let me just end the sermon by telling you a little secret about your own heart. Here's the secret to Psalm 16. This is a secret about your own heart, whether or not you know it. The joy that's described in Psalm 16 is in you. That's the gospel. By grace through faith, when you believe in Jesus, the happiest man who ever lived dwells in you. And so right here, right now, you are literally full of joy. Objectively full of joy because Christ dwells within you. You're full, you are joyful, period. I know the temptation is to be like, bro, I don't seem joyful right now. I know you don't. That's an illusion, not reality. Right now you think, yeah, but I don't feel joy right now. I know, that's an illusion, not reality. Objectively, scientifically, spiritually, right here, right now, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are dwelling in your heart. Dude, there's nothing you need to do to be more joyful. There's nothing in your life that needs to get better for you to be more joyful. There's nothing in your life that you could do to achieve joyfulness. It's already happened, and so all you need is for God to help you discover 
what he's already accomplished in you. It's in there. And so there's really just one thing left for us to do. And it's the thing that I hope you spend the rest of your life doing. The one thing that's left for us to do as followers of Jesus is to simply believe in what Christ has already accomplished. To fight for what has already been put in you. And when you start to live that type of life, you look out at the cup of idolatry and you say, oh, that's, that's not my cup. And you end up pressing your dilapidated, thirsty little heart up to the chalice of the Lord and just chugging until you fill your heart with Jesus. So let's pray. And then we're gonna keep fighting for the joy that's already within us. Heavenly Father, the overwhelming sense that I have when I'm with this church. It's just so good to be back here this morning. And the overwhelming sense that I have is that you are here and you love this church. Oh, that somebody would believe that this morning. That somebody would wake up to the reality that in Christ, We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus and so God is absolutely head over heels for us. Absolutely enthralled with us, not tolerating us, not putting up with us, but rejoicing over us. And so it's the precious name of Jesus that we pray all things in his name. Amen. We're gonna transition into a response time, right? Right. I'm assuming you guys know what response looks like. I think you guys do communion on a weekly basis. So guys, just press in in this moment. Tune your heart to the voice of God. Hear the Father's voice and fight to believe in what's already true about you. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit out. Our hearts are so numb sometimes. So I pray that you would thaw them out that you would bring feeling back to our hearts so that we could experience that joy that you've already put in our hearts. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen.